The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Mary Roach, is the author of five books, including Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void, Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife, and Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. Her writing has appeared in Outside, Wired, National Geographic, and the New York Times Magazine. She's here today to talk about her latest book, the New York Times bestseller, Gulp Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. Welcome to Health Watch, Mary Roach. Thank you very much for having me on. So when I was in medical school, our, our anatomy teacher called the human being a glorified tube. And it feels like you're, you're essentially structuring the book as a journey or a voyage down the glorified tube from one end to the other. I think that's a, a pretty ingenious way to put the book together. <laughs> yeah, well, it made the... Uh... The, the task of structuring the book a little simpler was we're, we're starting at the nose and we're ending at the tail. And, uh, yeah, I, also I, I kind of I, I think that um, since some of the perhaps ickier things are happening further down, you, you kind of you start up in the, the – uh, the, the the more uh, the cleaner end of things, and by the time you make your way down there, I guess people are are getting used to being in there. So I kind of want to gradually uh, move them along. Toward so, the end that way, so yeah, it, it was a, a kind of a a nice way to structure it. So let's let's take our listeners down a, a a mini version of this voyage from from nose to rectum, and start with the uh, the interesting character Horace Fletcher, who's not only interesting because he's extreme in his ideas and and super eccentric, but also amazingly influential at the time. Yeah, Horace Fletcher was, uh, he was not an MD, he didn't have a medical background, but he became convinced uh, that very, very, very thorough chewing, and we're talking uh, at the extremes, 700 chews for a a bite of shallot was one example he gave. Uh, He he had this idea that you could eat a lot less food if you would simply chew it more thoroughly and extract more nutrition. He was an efficiency buff. Uh, Everything in his life was structured on getting the most out of what you had, whether it was typing letters without margins, as I found in his archives uh, on both sides of the page, or or eating, he he felt that uh, you could you could greatly increase the amount of uh, greatly increase the amount of of benefit and nutrition by extreme chewing. And what was amazing to me was the the extent to which it caught on. I mean, so there were some very very famous Fletcherizers, including Franz Kafka. Uh, he had folks in the military who were thinking of. Uh, uh, who actually had uh, put Fletcherizing forth as a something all the troops should learn, and of course, then the people who provide food for the troops could cut their uh, supplies down by giving them uh, a third as less to eat. So uh, he he got pretty far with his ideas. He was very well connected in society, uh, and we're talking here the, back in the 1910s, 20s uh, was when Fletcherizing was a huge, huge fad. And and put forth as a way to solve the national debt crisis at the same time, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, he was at one point he was saying, you know, a family of five by Fletcherizing could afford to furnish 
their flat in a matter of months by fletcherizing, and the money they'd save on food could be put towards, of course, it would have to be simple furnishings, he did add, but this from the man who lived in the Waldorf Astoria for a spell. And it was great to read the little scene between Franz Kafka and his father where I guess it's it was quite dreadful to have dinner or any meal with a Fletcherizer because <laughs> they were chewing the whole time and not speaking and he would hold his newspaper in front of his face so he didn't have to look at his son while he did this. Yeah, yeah. It's forever changed my image of Kafka. You know, there's that iconic photograph of Kafka with the fabulous cheekbones and the penetrating gaze. And now in my head, I've, I've got him continually chewing uh, uh, for, for hours at a spell. I mean, if you, were, if you do the math on this, I mean, mealtime would go on for so long that you could conceivably start to be peckish again before you would finish the meal you were working on. It was quite, quite an extreme undertaking. So, so Mary, as we travel further down the canal, we, we learn that chewing might be somewhat overrated. And you, you deal with another eccentric and fascinating um, piece of medical history when you talk about Alexis St. Martin and the hole in his side and, and the weird studies that his uh, somewhat predatory doctor does on him to prove, among other things, that maybe chewing isn't as important as Horace Fletcher thought. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, uh, Beaumont, William Beaumont was the physician uh, who, who did this work, and this was starting in uh, 1822 when Alexis St. Martin was uh, accidentally shot in the side, and which opened up this hole in the stomach. And uh, so way back when, yeah, uh, the, the, his work showed that the stomach was doing a kind of chewing of its own, although it was more of a chemical chewing. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, the, way, the way that he did it was quite uh, quite creative and or gruesome. Um, He had this mesh bag and he would put different food items, say a piece of boiled beef or some sliced cabbage and put it in this mesh bag into the stomach on a silk string, leave it in there for an hour, two hours, and then pull it back out and see what was going on with the food. And uh, And he's putting it in through the hole in the side of, of his patient. Yes, that's right. He's introducing it through this hole that has healed as a a fistulated passage. It's healed, um, it didn't heal closed, it healed open, and it, you know, there would be a little, a plug, which, you know, they they have today, fistulated cows, where they do similar uh, nutrition studies. But anyway, he'd put the food in, and the the boy, who was about 18, Alexis St. Martin, who'd been at that point hired as a houseboy, would go about the house doing his chores with his string hanging down from his side, and uh, then Beaumont would come along and, and pull the bag out and see what was going on. Uh, uh, as for Fletcherizing, we, uh, th- this is uh, relevant in that, with the exception of raw beef uh, and a couple, I think, peanuts, are, they're hard to completely chymify or liquefy. Uh, the stuff would be broken down by the, um, by the acids and enzymes of the stomach and the the churning and contraction, so you know you, you you don't need to be chewing your food so thoroughly that uh, uh, the stomach can really handle a great deal of that, um, reducing it to a more liquid state. So, so Beaumont did uh, you know he did make a contribution in his sort of ghastly way. And when you read the accounts of Beaumont with his patient, um, you you see that he actually also sticks his tongue into the hole and, and tastes the stomach of his patient, which seems so bizarre and, and repulsive today. But it was actually very common at the in medical history for for uh, doctors to taste and smell body fluids. 
Right. Back then, you, you couldn't just send it off to the lab and get a report back. You, some of the diagnostics were done with the human senses. Yeah, you can taste. I mean, uh, it was also you know, sugar diabetes. They called it that partly because there's a sweet taste to, and I'm not sure if it's the, the urine or the blood or both, but it, you, you could use the tongue uh, to, to diagnose diabetes. And there are no doubt countless other uh, fluids that could be tasted and smelled and and uh, yeah so so this you know of course to me I have this image of him leaning over with his tongue in the the hole in Alexis St. Martin's side imagining somebody walking in the room and what would they think but but it was yeah in the in the context of the era it wasn't all that uh outlandish in case you just tuned in, we're talking to Mary Roach today about her best-selling book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. So you also have a section on, on taste and whether taste is cultural or, or um, determined through nature. And, and, how, and also asking this, this question, like, why, for instance, do Americans not eat organ meats when they are the most nutritious? Like an Inuit person could avoid getting scurvy without eating any vegetables just by eating organ meats. What, tell us what you learned about um, how we develop our preferences in terms of food and, and the experiments that were done on, on little babies with, with organ meats and brains and marrow and, and other, uh, other um, foods that Americans tend to avoid. Sure, yeah. Well, we, we don't come into the world with this set of preferences that uh, this is good to eat and this is bad to eat. We are shaped a little bit by, uh, you know, in the womb even, a uh, 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 fetus is, is taking in amniotic fluid and you can taste, uh, if, the, if the mom is eating garlic, say, or Brussels sprouts, some of that flavor will come through uh, in the amniotic fluid and, and a little bit later in the breast milk. So, uh, and, and studies at Monell, the Monell Chemical Census Center, have shown that these kids who've been exposed to more flavors are a little bit more accepting of, of these foods. when they, They're not new and scary when they're presented, so they're a little more accepting of them. But that's you know, setting that aside, the, the notion of what, what is good to eat and what is disgusting or unthinkable is largely cultural, uh, and it starts to uh, it starts to show up in you know in young children. You, you can get little kids up, up through two to try just about anything. Paul Rosen, a disgust researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, did a study with um, kids 16 to 29 months, put in front of them things that most American adults would deem inedible: a, a sterilized grasshopper, uh, some artificial dog do crafted from peanut butter and Limburger cheese for smell and presented as dog do, uh, a plate of fish eggs, things that most adults would, would uh, push aside. The, the, uh, a fairly significant percentage of the, uh, the babies were, were willing to put in their mouth and try. Uh, and even there was a, a wonderful study, Clara Davis, I believe her name was, had, uh, had took orphans at a certain orphanage and put them on this diet, which consisted of a, a big table of bowls of foods, you know, not nothing prepared, nothing cooked, just basic ingredients, vegetables, meats, uh, some organ meats, in fact, brain marrow. Uh, and, and there were surprising results. The babies tended to try everything, first of all. And some, one of their uh, top foods was, was bone marrow, something that, you know, a lot of American adults find a, a scary thing to eat or, or say that they don't like. Uh, not all of the organ meats were on their top cho- list of top choices, but 
Um, they tended to gravitate towards to some surprising things. But you know, as it, but then you know, as we grow up, we eat what the people around us eat. We eat what people on television eat, uh, and it's tough to get a culture to change its eating habits. The United States tried to do that during World War II and all the um, cuts of meat like steaks and chops and stewing meats were being shipped to the troops overseas. They, they tried very hard to get Americans to embrace organ meats. Uh, well, not terribly successful, a little bit. Uh, it was quite a campaign. They brought in Margaret Mead and other anthropologists to try to figure out what, what could we do to get people to embrace, consume, enjoy these very nutritious meats. So, so to follow the thread of, of the different cultural responses around disgust, as we move farther down the tube, gulp gets funnier and funnier as we get to the areas that are, are more and more taboo. But there's also a very, I mean, when we're looking at like scientists who are dedicating their lives to the constituents and, and farts, for instance, but there's also, as we move farther down and there's more of a, uh, cultural revulsion to what's going on, say, in the colon and the rectum, you, you point out something that's really interesting about how um, maybe our revulsion are culturally around these bodily functions is preventing real science from happening. And, and you cited the fact, for instance, that anal cancer didn't even have an association or to advocate for it until to 2010. That's right, yeah. They didn't even have a colored ribbon. And, uh, and that is, uh, there's a ribbon for appendix cancer. I mean, there's a ribbon for almost every other cancer that you can name, but anal cancer uh, up until then. Yeah, there was no, there was no advocacy group. There were no walkathons, uh, and 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 that's that's tragic because anal cancer. Uh, my understanding is it is uh, associated with HPV, human papillomavirus, and 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 it it is preventable by using a condom. Uh, it's so it's something that people should be aware of, uh, but there's there's so little conversation about it. And and uh, I spoke with a, a historian of anatomy who uh, confirmed something that somebody had mentioned, which was that in the early days of, of the study of anatomy, the colon and rectum would be cut away, cut from the body and thrown away because uh, it tended to smell and it was considered, I think they put it, because of its nastiness and scent bag propensities. So get that out of here. It's disgusting. So you know, the, the, I would imagine then that the, the study the, and the understanding of that organ would, uh, would lag behind somewhat. And then you have a section on fecal transplantation. So taking a little bit of the feces from one person and putting it into another to help recolonize good bacteria. And, and that research may have been retarded because of, because of our squeamishness around that very idea. Yeah. And not, and not a little bit there. I mean, they, I was there for, for an actual transplantation and it was a, a, a fairly large amount of material. It's not, you know, we're not talking a couple grams. Uh, really, you want to completely reseed the, the ailing person's colon uh, with uh, healthy bacteria. So you, you take a lot of the feces material, you know, it's it's put in a blender with some distilled water and it's, uh, you know, about a cup of, of material. And, and that seems just instinctively like a bad and repellent thing to do. But it is it is one of those rare success stories in medicine where it's a, a cheap and 90-something percent effective cure for, in this case, for a, a chronic infection with a bacteria called C. difficile, which can make people's lives miserable and 
uh, kills about 30,000 people a year. It's, it's so it's a, it's a tremendous success story. And yeah, it took a long time. The first one was done in the 50s, I believe, not for C. diff or something else. But the and the idea uh, uh, of fecal transplant has been in agriculture with horses and cows. It's been done for decades. But as for you know doing it in a human, it's taken a while. The other thing going on, of course, though, is that there's no pharmaceutical company that stands to profit from feces. So uh, there, it, it, there hasn't been an obvious person to kind of usher the practice through the required trials and, and to, to fund that. So that's also been uh, standing in the way of it. But, but uh, I think but the, the person that I spoke with who, you know, I went and observed a, a transplantation, and, and he said, yeah, the, the, the ick factor plays into it. It just seems... To us, to be you know uh, an unthinkable thing to do for men, and, but now you know, the taboo has begun to break down. With it. there's been some major studies that have been published, including the New England Journal of Medicine, and so now, and there's been enough media coverage that people have started to accept the notion, and that's fantastic. I get emails from people saying, "Do you know anybody?" You know, people feel more free to say, "Hey, I I would like to look into getting a fecal transplant." Or bacteria therapy is the more polite, I suppose. Term for it to abandon politeness a little bit. We we um, one of my favorite sections is all of the various uses of enemas over the ages, and and uh, <laughs> you have a you have a section on enemas used to poison people, enemas with holy water for exorcisms, but you also have this section on on a, something that was even more widespread called nutrient enemas, which were done by President Garfield, but were also um, debated in the Vatican. Can you tell us a little bit about nutrient enemas? Yes, yes. Uh, nutrient enemas, uh, well, before there was, you know, you, if, if, if you're having trouble eating the normal way, forward, mouth to rectum, uh, if you say you have a, a blockage or you're, you're throwing up and you can't keep food in, uh, you can eat backwards, so to speak, and you can, you can absorb a certain amount, not a lot. I mean, the small intestine is where most of the uh, absorption of nutrients happens, but the, the rectum and colon have, uh, you, know, you can absorb salt, sugar, some short-chain fatty acids. So you can keep someone uh, alive. You can help them survive by giving what's called uh, nutrient enemas or rectal alimentation or rectal feeding, it's also called. Uh, and nowadays, of course, you would put someone uh, on an IV or you could even feed directly into the stomach. There's other ways to get food in if somebody can't swallow or is throwing up. But uh, rectal feeding was uh, was practiced uh, um, quite a bit. There's a, lot, a fair number of papers debating how much nutrient is absorbed. President Garfield was kind of the poster boy for rectal feeding because his physician wrote an entire book about it called Rectal Feeding, and including recipes. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, so anyway, was there a favorite the, food that he liked to eat this way? <laughs> well, um, it tended to be. Uh, let's see, there was a, a recipe for uh, it was the Assistant Surgeon General's rectal beef extract. So it, beef broth was a common one, and beef broth was the one that the Vatican began discussing because there was a there were there were nuns who during Lent fasting was something that uh, some of the uh, nuns in some convents were doing, and they had taken to getting uh, uh, rectally fed with beef broth as a way of bypassing the restrictions because eating is defined by the Vatican as food that is comes in through the mouth and goes through the stomach. So uh, there's sort of a loophole so that if you, if you were taking it in rectally, you weren't breaking your fast, and the Vatican got wind of this, and they actually 
uh, thought about doing some some experiments where they would see if somebody could survive this way. And but of course, if the person couldn't, then they'd have murder on their hands. And so that was uh, they didn't want to do that. But um, there was a lot of debate back and forth. Uh, this is you know, historically, this is not now. This is not yet another thing for the Vatican to be <laughs> fending off. Um, well, well, Mary, let's let's end the show on some science of of flatulence, and uh, I, I know that um, hydrogen sulfide you talk a lot about in in this section because hydrogen sulfide in very large amounts is scentless and lethal, but in smaller amounts is very stinky. And the question <laughs> you you answer in this is: Is it also dangerous? So, for our listeners out there who may have a flatulent partner are they harming themselves <laughs> are they harming themselves with the hydrogen sulfide i well i worried about this a little bit because um brussels sprouts are one of the uh, cruciferous vegetables like including brussels sprouts are uh main culprits in the production of hydrogen sulfide in the intestine and my husband is a huge fan of brussels sprouts and in the winter i when it's brussels sprout season i sometimes pull the covers over my head and i when I first heard about hydrogen sulfide and how in like 1,000 parts per million it's lethal, and I thought, could I be? Could this be bad for my health? And but I was reassured by Michael Levitt, who's a, uh, done many many papers on hydrogen sulfide in human flatus, that uh, in fact it was uh, not something to worry about because we're talking here about three or four parts per million rather than a thousand parts per million, and I, I, I'll survive fine. It's not necessarily a pleasant thing to wake up to, but uh, not dangerous. Well, pre, when I was pre-med, before I was in medical school, I was I was measuring methane gas from temperate and tropical lakes in their natural environment, and we learned that um, you know some of the sources of of methane in the world were uh, termite um, gas, cow burping, but also a third of humans produced methane. So, and so those third are also essentially uh, contributing to global warming, aren't they? Yes, they are. They absolutely are. The other thing in association with that is that you always hear, if you are one of those produce one-third of the population with the bacteria that produce methane, that your flatus would burn blue like a pilot light. But I have not been able to find photographic, cinematographic evidence of this on YouTube, so uh, I I don't have confirmation of that. I mean, I've heard it for years. Uh, I don't, and I just don't know if the concentrations aren't enough, or maybe just I haven't stumbled onto the right YouTube video. But anyway, there is that uh, urban myth that goes around. And, and to loop around to the the beginning of the tube again, there is some connection between human flatulence and whether you hold it in and um, the components in your breath. Yes, which is not to say that one's breath would smell like farts, but, but uh, because the, the gas in question here is mostly hydrogen. Uh, and, and some of the hydrogen in your gut, in your colon, is going to be absorbed into the blood, so you're going to have, it'll make its way to your lungs and you will exhale it. That's actually how flatulence researchers measure how flatulent someone is. But I, if, you, if you tend to be someone who holds in your, 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 your gas, you would think that you would then absorb more and you'd have an inflated breath hydrogen rating. So, so it, it's very tricky how, how uh, flatulence is measured person by person. There's a lot of kind of ways for it to be, uh, for, the, for the data to be misleading. And 
um, anyway. Did you ever get to wear the special pantaloons that the, <laughs> the uh, flatulent scientists use to collect and, and measure the gas? The Mylar flatus trapping pantaloons, I believe you speak of. Sadly, exactly. we couldn't find them. They were somewhere down in the storeroom, but I had to make do with a photograph of someone wearing them. I did not get to try them on. I, uh, have you ever looked up, I was curious about this and I'm really sorry that I didn't bring it in, but did you, have you ever looked up flatulence in the Merck manual before? Yes, I once interviewed Robert Burko, who was the editor of the, uh, there was a period of time where the entry for flatulence included this wonderful breakdown of the different types, the four different varieties yes. of flatulence. And he, the, the next editor went and pulled that out and then somebody put it back in. So I, we were so shocked. And, yeah, we were so shocked in medical school that this book that is so dry and clinical had this one page out of a thousand pages that was <laughs> extremely hilarious. It was. There was like the slider, silent, and something or other, and um, uh, what was it? Joyfully passed in private or something like that. And uh, they, yeah, there were four, four varieties. And I just, I, I love that the different editors, depending on their sensibility, had yanked it out or put it back in. Well, Mary, it was a real pleasure to read Gulp and have you on Health Watch today. Oh, well, pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. We we're talking today with the author and science writer, Mary Roach, about her book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. If you missed part of today's program, you'll be able to go to kboo.fm backslash healthwatch, or you can go to iTunes and search for healthwatch, one word, and get it as a podcast. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine. Next up is Madness Radio with a talk about the politics of language and labels.